Good morning again. Good to be with you. My name is Brad Cheney, and we are in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 49. Included in today's passage are four of Jesus' most vivid word pictures. Um, all of them are supposed to have kind of a, a dry Jewish humor about them, although I don't know that, I think because of their familiarity, the, the humor maybe doesn't quite come through uh, to us because we've read it so many times or just because of the English. But, you know, all of these are meant to be somewhat comical, and yet they're also deadly serious warnings, like warnings about the kingdom of heaven or, in this case, rival visions and teachings about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, No doubt Jesus had the Pharisees immediately in mind, but all of it is really applicable to us in the church as well. So the first is a riddle he gives about blind leading the blind. Uh, The second is the the part of the passage I'm going to focus on the most with the uh, speck of sawdust in one person's eye and the plank in uh, another's eye. The third is how a good tree bears good fruit and you can't uh, pick figs off of thorn bushes, etc. And then the last is a warning about building one's life on a solid foundation. But, you know, all of these are just very short, very vivid, very memorable. And that's part of Jesus' um, genius and his ability to teach people uh, uh, something that, uh, you know, I, I haven't figured out quite how to do yet, um, to speak in such a way that people can easily remember what's being said and be challenged by that. But, I mean, this was Jesus, as I said, his, his genius. Um, and in the spirit of the day of transfiguration, we remember how God said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Um, and, and so let's listen to him now. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told this, them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? <laughs> Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, When you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. And then finally, verse 46. "Uh, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He will be like a man 
building a house, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock, or on rock. When a flood came, this torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Let's pray. Uh, Oh Lord, we simply ask you to speak. Well, you have spoken, um, but now to speak to our hearts and help us to understand these things that we have read. Um, Challenge us and convict us and lead us into uh, lead us into a better way of being human. Amen. When some of you were kids, the uh, most famous and beloved verse of the Bible was uh, none other than John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him uh, shall not perish but have eternal life. Now the most popular verse in the Bible is what Jesus says in our passage here in verse 37, or he says the very same thing in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. The most America's life verse (laughs) is right here, do not judge lest ye be judged. I mean, isn't it true? You can run into people who have virtually no exposure to the Bible whatsoever, and yet they know this verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. It is truly America's life verse. And it it very much fits with our cultural moment, does it? Because a lot of people say, you know, to judge means that you must never evaluate negatively someone else's faith or belief or behavior. Uh, That is because morality and religion are private personal things. And we must never call into question someone else's religious convictions or moral choices because it's a private thing. That's between them and God. That's not between you and you and them. And, and besides, whatever might be true for him uh, may not be true for you. Whatever is true for you may not be true for him. And so we, you know, f- for that reason and, and others, you just must never ever give a moral evaluation on anything. But that's, of course, not what Jesus can mean here. Um, that's really, it's actually a, a fairly, I don't, I don't think it's intended to be cynical, but it's a fairly cynical perspective because what, what they're really saying is nobody can know what is true about morality and religion except for my truth that says nobody can know. <laughs> uh, or uh, I'm absolutely cynical about there being any capital tr- T moral or religious truth, except for the capital T T truth of moral relativism. Um, No, Jesus can't be excluding all moral and religious evaluative judgments. I mean, you can't even have a society that tries to do that. You can't even parent a kid if you try and and judge not in that respect. So, So what does he mean then about judge not? I think what he's talking about here is is a, is a critical spirit. What he is forbidding in us, his followers, is a critical spirit. Or um, let me give you a few SAT words. You probably haven't heard these since the last time you were taking the SAT, which might have been a while before. He's forbidding his followers from being peevish. Peevish. If you're peevish, you are easily irritated by the faults of others. 
He's forbidding us as his followers for being, uh, uh, from being captious. If you were captious, you're a fault-finding person. You're always looking for what's wrong. Uh, some of us have captious people in our lives. Every time the phone rings or you get a text or an email from that person, you're kind of like, all right, here we go again. <laughs> you know, dear Jim, I have a problem with fill in the blank. Um, and uh, that's just kind of how the person is, aren't they? You don't get a birthday card. You don't get an attaboy. You get, here's what you did was wrong. Um, it's almost like they have the spiritual gift of discouragement. <laughs> So Jesus says, don't be captious. Don't be peevish. Don't be presumptuous. Do not presume that you have spiritual x-ray vision that is able to look inside another human being and ascertain their real motives. Don't presume you know their motives. Um, See, all of these words would have, of course, described the Pharisees, uh, men who were much too severe on others and their motives while being far too generous with their own. But they're certainly applicable to us, aren't they? We do this all the time. I got to thinking this week, who wants this to be their legacy? Like, who of us want the people to come to our memorial service at the end and to to be standing around and, and talking among themselves and saying, I mean... Yeah, I loved Mr. Smith, but he just re- he really became cranky later in life. He's just more and more cranky and judgmental. I remember my Mima, my grandmother, we called her Mima. How many of you had a Mima? <laughs> yeah, that's a Southern thing. Yeah. Uh, but my Mima, I don't know why she would say this, but she'd talk about the hardening of the arteries and how somehow the hardening of your arteries is what you, makes you kind of angry and critical as you get older. I, I'm sure that's... Doctors, is there any <laughs> validity to that? No, it's an old wives' tale. But it is, it is reflective of something that seems to happen to us, especially as we get older. We just become, like, do people age and become more gracious? Like, no, they don't. Usually we age and we just become more and more critical. Verse 41, look at it with me, or look there with me. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, the reason this would have been uh, even funnier if you heard it in the original setting is the word plank doesn't do the—the do the, the Greek word there is much bigger than a plank. Now, we think of a plank maybe as a two-by-four, but in fact, in the Greek— and whatever it would have been the accompanying Aramaic that was Jesus, Jesus was speaking, in the Greek— It refers to a load-bearing beam and house. (laughs) Like, it refers to a tree uh, or a telephone pole. A telephone pole is, I think, millions of times more wood than a speck of sawdust in the other person's eye. And what Jesus is talking about here is very frightening to me. And it should be very frightening to us. He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees who have this unique capacity— to find a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye while missing the telephone pole in their own. And what is that telephone pole? It is a censorious spirit, a critical spirit. And it's very easy to miss because it does, it does seem, doesn't it, that Christians miss this all the time. 
Because, I mean, if we were to go out and they've, I mean, they've done the surveys, you know, nine out of 10 young adults say that Christians are judgmental and the church is judgmental. And you, in the course of your Christian life, have met a lot of Christians who are just massively judgmental, haven't you? And they've missed, they missed the telephone pole in their own eye. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to miss our own crankiness and peevishness and lack of graciousness, isn't it? Ken Sandy, you may know that name, he started years back a ministry called Peacemakers Ministries. I think he's changed the name of it since then. He wrote um, a while back, I came across an excellent article on this topic, on um, our our critical spirits. And so a lot of what you're going to hear from now on through the rest of the sermon, I'm drawing from Ken Sandy's insights. He says that instead of judging people critically, what God calls us to do is judge people charitably. And remember the old, that old word, at least in its original formation, charity, it was synonymous with love. And so what the Bible calls us to, what God calls us to, Jesus calls us to make charitable judgments of other people. And here's a definition of charitable, charitable judgment, if you're taking notes. Making a charitable judgment means that out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. Out of love for God, you strive to believe the best about others until you have facts to prove otherwise. If you can reasonably interpret facts in two possible ways, God calls you to embrace the positive interpretation over the negative interpretation, or at least postpone making any judgment at all until you can acquire conclusive facts. That's a pretty good definition. I mean, really all he's doing, if you think of it in this, in this way, is he's just telling us to do the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. How do you want other people to judge you? Do you want them to interpret your actions in the best possible way? Do you want their default mode and orientation towards you to be uh, thinking good of you instead of thinking evil of you? Do you really want somebody else to try and understand your side of the story before drawing conclusions or talking to others about you? Well, if so, (laughs) I suspect we all want that, don't we? Jesus commands you to go and do likewise. Another way to think of it is uh, in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great chapter on love, how love is patient, love is kind, it does not boast, you know, etc., etc. You go to the very end of that list in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes these things. Love always protects the other, the reputation of the other. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. And love always perseveres. In other words, love always is looking for reasonable ways to trust the other person. Love is always looking for other ways to hope in the other person. Love is always interpreting other words and actions in a way that protects the other person's reputation and credibility. Is this how you love others when you judge them? Another way to think of it (laughs) is just considering it in terms of the ninth commandment. 
The ninth commandment tells us, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, traditionally in the church, the ninth commandment has has been interpreted not only to mean that you've got to tell the truth in in a judicial setting, but also it means that you must promote the good reputation of your neighbor. If you want to... In our Sunday school class, we're going through the larger catechism in modern English. I think Shelton and uh, um, Greg's class, you guys are going to hit the Ten Commandments and the larger catechism near the end of your class. Larger catechism 144, question 144, is, is golden. It's a gem. It's write it down and read it this week. I would suggest to you it might be the most disobeyed commandments in all of America and all of the Christian church. Here's what it says. What does the ninth commandment require of us? The ninth commandment requires, here's the truth part, that we maintain and promote truthfulness in all our dealings with each other and the good reputation of others as well as ourselves. We must come forward and stand up for the truth, speaking the truth and nothing but the truth from our hearts Sincerely, freely, clearly, and without equivocation, not only in all matters relating to the, to the law and justice, but in any and every circumstance whatsoever. We must also have a charitable regard for others, loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good reputation, as well as regretting and putting the best light on their failings. We must freely acknowledge their talents and gifts, defending their innocence, readily receiving, readily receiving a good report about them, and reluctantly admitting a bad report about them. We should discourage gossips, flatterers, and slanderers, and focus our lives and thoughts on things that are true, noble, lovely, and admirable. As I said, I this might be the most disobeyed command in the church um, because this is just simply not how Christians normally treat each other. Um, Like we really do, we thrive on controversy, especially on uh, theological controversy. If you ever read the Christian blogosphere, you know that this is is perfectly reversed. So instead of readily receiving a good report about someone and reluctantly admitting a bad report, that gets reversed. And instead, we cheerfully receive a bad report (laughs) about another pastor or another author or another church or another parishioner. And we're very, we are very slow to receive the good report. Isn't that so twisted? Why would we do that? It's because we are deeply warped by sin. (laughs) Now we do this. Listen to a prayer I came across. It begins by saying, Help me to judge rightly, Lord. Help me to judge others the way that I want want them to judge me. Charitably, not critically. Privately, not publicly. Gently, not harshly. In humility, not in pride. Help me to believe the best about others until facts prove otherwise. To assume nothing, to seek all sides of the story, and to judge no one until I've removed the plank, the log from my own eye. 
And may I never bring only the law, as the Pharisees did, to find fault and condemn. But help me always to bring the gospel to give hope and deliverance, as you, my judge and friend, have so graciously done for me. I always go back to Francis Schaeffer's famous tape recorder uh, illustration. And I don't remember the context that he originally spoke it, it in, but he said, it's almost as if God, imagine that God, every human being is born into the world with, with an invisible tape recorder strapped around their neck. And the only thing that that tape recorder ever records, it only begins recording when you start to make an evaluation or moral judgment on another person. When you start to talk about another person. As soon as you say, uh, so-and-so did this and this, and she shouldn't have been, and can you believe, and you, all of a sudden that tape recorder, it clicks, and it, it begins to record. Now, obviously, it's a 1980s <laughs> illustration. Um, If I was born into this world with a tape recorder around my neck, I would do everything in my power to try and destroy that cassette. Wouldn't you? Like all the things that I've said about others uh, and the standards that I have used towards them, like could, could, we, could we stand if God like held to us, held us to the same unmerciful standard that we hold other people to. Now I take great comfort from the fact that when God judges, God is omniscient and so he can judge, he evaluates the entirety of that other person. Like when God judges, he knows their biology. He knows their family history. He knows their sinful tendencies. He knows their current struggles. He knows the thousands of different factors that go into their behavior. God's judgment is omniscient. Therefore, it's perfectly just. And my judgment is, <laughs> I'm working on a very narrow window of information here. And so my judgment is likely to be oftentimes very skewed. And off kilter. You know, most of all, when God judges, he, he judges mercifully. Verse 38, wow, look at that. It says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Is the measure that you use the measure of, uh, of grace and mercy? We'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. All right, let me make one important clarification at this point in the sermon. It's on charitable judgments. Charitable judgments do not require us to believe that an action is good when there is significant evidence to the contrary. Although we should always give people the benefit of the doubt, we should not ignore clear indications that things are not as they should be. In fact, excessive charity, Ken Sandy writes, can lead, excessive charity can lead to denial and blind us to issues that need to be faced. I'll never forget right after the Jerry Sandusky you know, child abuse allegations came to light at Penn State. The, uh, the Campus Crusade for Christ director uh, at their large group preached a sermon to a group of students entitled, Love Notices Wet Hair. Love Notices. 
And Love notices, you remember in World War II how many villages in Europe knew that there was some kind of German camp out there that Jews were being taken to, but we just knew Jews were going there. We, we didn't know anything else about that, right? We, knew, we didn't know they were dying out there. And so they tried this whole thing of plausible deniability. Well, yeah, you didn't know because you didn't want to know. Or, or you didn't love enough. Love notices. Love notices. And so I want to say this. Very important clarification. If you see signs of something significantly wrong, be it in this church or in, in a home that you enter into or, or your workplace, you must have the courage to ask questions and investigate the matter and gather reliable information and draw necessary conclusions. Jesus is not saying, you know, stick your head in the sand like an ostrich. Um, if it appears that someone has done something wrong, and that is a wrong, it's a wrong that is too serious to overlook. Very important clarification. If it's too serious to overlook, then you should go to that person and find out whether you're assessing the situation accurately. Because love notices. Finally, I have four things that I like, short things that I'd like you to keep in, cons- uh, to consider. Uh, as we seek to obey God's command to judge charitably, there are four ways that I want to alert you to about how we judge uncharitably. Um, number one, we tend to fixate on the negative qualities of others. What do I mean by that? When we develop a critical attitude towards someone else, we start a subtle but steady process of selective data gathering where we easily overlook or minimize others' good qualities while at the same time magnifying all the unfavorable ones. I mean, all that, really, it's just kind of a negative form of confirmation bias, isn't it? As we find faults that reinforce our opinions that we have already formed, We seize upon those eagerly. We say to ourselves, and sometimes we say to others, See, I told you so. You know, one uh, critical judgment looks for and feeds on others. And and the person's character is steadily diminished and ultimately destroyed in our minds. Uh, Isn't that true? Negative confirmation bias. You can't see anything good in them anymore. All you can see is, is the bad. Number two... These are all, again, from Ken Sandy. The second way we judge others wrongly is to think the worst of their words and actions. We may hear rumors or of conversations or observe fragments of an opponent's behavior, but instead of searching for a favorable interpretation of their actions or giving them a chance to explain what happened, we prefer to put the worst construction on what they have done. We will overlook things that are in the person's favor and focus on the things that seem to be against them. Not always. I, you know, I can tell you one of the kindest things people down through the years have done for me as a pastor, because I talk a lot on Sunday and I say a lot of sometimes mistaken things, <laughs> is they come to me and they give me the opportunity to clarify. Like, I love the, the can you please clarify this emails? I'll take those any day of the week. Brad, I thought I heard you say this. That's really kind of disturbing to me or I have questions about it. Will you please? Can you explain a little bit more? Um, isn't it so refreshing when somebody who might be offended by what you had to say nevertheless comes to you and gives you an opportunity to, um, 
to sort of make things right. It's a great gift. It's just a gift that's not given with enough frequency, is it, in our impersonal relationships? Third, uh, the most insidious type of critical judgment is to assume the worst about others' motives. Uh, We are quick to attribute others' actions to an unworthy motive, and we are quick to attribute to ourselves a worthy motive. (laughs) We're very severe on their motives. We're very generous on our own. Um, And it's this whole x-ray vision thing where like I can see inside of you and and I know why you're doing this. It's because of your pride or your greed or your selfishness, your your propensity to control, your stubbornness, your favoritism. Uh, When doing this, when we say things like all he cares about is money or she likes to go first so she can impress everyone. They're too proud to listen to advice. Now, occasionally those appraisals are accurate. They're correct. But in many occasions, they will be false because they're much too binary. They're, they're just much too black and white. You, uh, good, bad. Um, and we have to remember too that scripture warns against indulging an evil and suspicious spirit against our brothers and sisters and failing to judge them in love. You know, this is really common in broader society, but we do it through the form of, of commonly held stereotypes. So, we, I mean, we really do kind of talk as though all politicians are corrupt and all lawyers are corrupt and doctors who used to be kind of sympathetic, but now they just want your money and the rich are selfish because they don't pay any taxes and the poor are lazy because they don't want to work and pastors are fake because they only work one day of the week. <laughs> Muslims are violent, and Jews are conniving, Southerners are racist, and Yankees are liberals, and like, it's constantly the conversation all around us. It's an attribution of motive, and it's so ugly. It is so ugly. The last one, number four, is just how critical judgments are so contagious. Like, A good report spreads about two miles an hour. (laughs) A bad report (laughs) spreads about 200,000 miles an hour. Um, And, you know, we do this because uh, our comments influence others around us. So if we reach a critical judgment about someone, we pass it on to others. And furthermore, people tend to treat us the way we uh, we treat them. So if I'm treating you suspiciously and critically, then you're going to, in a matter of time, start to treat me the very same way. And before you know it, you get into a Galatians 5, 14 situation where Paul says to the church, the Christians at Galatia, stop biting and devouring each other. He, he talks to a church and says, literally, stop cannibalizing your own. Stop cannibalizing each other. Quite a few years ago, we had uh, a wonderful couple come out and speak to our church. Dennis and Margie Hack. How many of you were even here when we had Dennis and Margie Hack? Like, there's about... 12 hands that go up. It was a long time ago in the history of all saints. Dennis and Margie um, are kind of, they really, uh, they think a lot about how to winsomely communicate the Christian gospel to a culture that is largely hostile to that gospel. A very sweet and gracious people. Margie writes a semi-annual newsletter called Notes from Toad Hall. 
riffing off of Frog and Toad. Uh, great articles in there. She told a story about two years ago, and I have a reason for telling it. It is kind of passing a bad report on, but uh, forgive that, if you, if you will. Maybe I'm being hypocritical and even telling the story, but stick with me. Dennis was sitting down with his 93-year-old father, who was a retired missionary and pastor. And his father at this time brought up how much he hated Barack Obama and the fact that he was a, a dirty, stinky Muslim. Now, he could have said the same thing about something comparable to George W. Bush. Don't let the political figure here, um, de- de- you know, just leave the politics aside. But his father said that probably because um, Obama's middle name was Hussein, um, and yet we know that Obama was baptized into a liberal mainline church, and he attends, as best I know with his family, a liberal mainline church. Not a church that I would go to by any stretch of the imagination, but... Um, He's not a Muslim. At least the only people who think that, that Barack Obama are Muslim are like crazy conspiracy uh, theories out there. And so Dennis was like, you know, sometimes you, you have to make a choice. You can let something go and not say anything. And then he said, in retrospect, I should have just let it go and not said a word. I should not have corrected the mistake. But <laughs> I quietly suggested that, you know, we do have to be careful about our sources. And if we say something false about someone else— it doesn't help the world respect Christians or the gospel if we were perpetuating things that are false about someone else. And his father looked at him and he said, after he said, it doesn't help the gospel, he says, he looked at him and he says, you have never cared about the gospel for a single day in your life. And that, he said, and that pretty much summed up how my father actually thought of me. <laughs> Retired missionary and, and pastor. Uh, I'm not so sure why, but like, I never got an attaboy. Um, like that was what my thought, that's what my father thought about me. Um, he was always so critical. And some of you, you know exactly what that's like. You grew up with that father who was so critical. And it's devastating. Nothing I ever did what drew a well done from my dad. And I don't know why. Um, but he carried that with him to his grade. We just have to be so careful. Um, so careful. Not to, it's like gangrene that gets into your soul and it just spreads and it poisons you. Um, All right, the thing is, Jesus came to earth to deliver us from that sin. Uh, He says here, I know the sermon's going long. I thought. Let me f- f- speed up. Um, he says here that we are to remove the plank from our eye, not so that we can ignore the speck of dust in our brother's eye. Isn't it kind of cool? He says, remove the plank from your eye so that you can help your brother actually remove all the sawdust in his eye. I mean, because the way sawdust and stuff in our eyes work, especially in a world where you didn't have a mirror that you could hold up and see the sawdust, I mean, this, the mirrors then were so opaque. You couldn't see something small like that. You need a brother who can come and see clearly and who's able to approach you and, and help you take that, that, uh, that sawdust out of your eye. And how do we do that? How do we approach a brother to help him remove something sinful in his life? Do we come at him with an ice pick? <laughs> Here, let me help you. Now we always come to him 
We, we come with a piece of tissue in our hands. We come gently. We come humbly. We, uh, we, um, we're, we don't need self-righteous. We need friends. We don't need condemners. We need gentle brothers and sisters. And the great thing is that's how Jesus dealt with his disciples. He dealt with, with his disciples um, that way. I'm going to conclude at verse 38. I told you we'd come back to this verse. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Here's what he's saying. If God forgives you, forgive others. (laughs) If God gives to you, give to others. That's the way it's supposed to, to work. If God is merciful to you and his son at the cross then be merciful to others. Otherwise, we're hypocrites if we receive forgiveness and generosity and mercy and we're not giving forgiveness and generosity and mercy. We've all been to the grocery store and uh, we've bought a pack of, of um, a bag of potato chips. Maybe you opened a pack of a bag of potato chips with your child the very first time and you, they gasp as they, as they open it. They look inside and they're like, ah! That's 70% air. <laughs> there's hardly any, there's hardly any chips in this. All the chips have settled to the surface and, and they're like, ah, it's all of lies and in the bag. Well, the way that you would buy grain in their day is you would take your receptacle to the market. They would pour some in there and they would say, well, you pay your, pay your fee. And you'd say, I'm not paying yet. Pour some more in there, stamp it down, <laughs> press it hard, pour some more in there until the receptacle is overflowing. And that way that you knew that you were getting a full measure, a full measure that, that you know, is not artificially inflated by space and air. And that's how God says that Christ deals with us, isn't it? Like he he gives us a full measure of grace. Like he hasn't skimped in the least bit on his grace to us. And therefore, that is the measure we must measure each other by, overflowing grace. So friends, if we know him to be our gracious master, that will put an end to our critical spirits and enable us to uh, charitably judge our brothers and sisters. Amen.